0: I thought we'd get going by illustrating some seriously bad choices that people have made. We could start with this guy. His name is Nolan Bushnell. Nolan Bushnell. He is the founder of Atari. Remember Atari making those home video game consoles? You know, they were the big thing back in the late 70s, I think. And one of his employees was a guy named Steve Jobs. You may have heard of that guy. Steve Jobs decided to leave Atari and start his own company, a little company called Apple, and offered Mr. Bushnell an opportunity to invest some seed money, about $50,000 in Apple. And Bushnell stepped back, thought about it, and made the choice, no. Had Bushnell decided to invest in Apple... He would have owned a third of Apple, one-third of a company that is now valued at $480 billion. He made a bad choice. He made a bad choice. Then there's this guy. You remember that guy? His name is Walt Disney. Now, I'm not talking about his choices. I'll tell you what, I'm thankful for his choices, Uh, lots of joy and happy memories at uh, his location. What I'm going to talk about is a decision made about this guy. Now, you and I look at this guy and we think he's a genius, but not too many people thought of him as a genius back then. As a matter of fact, the Kansas City Star in uh, the early 1900s uh, fired him because his editor said he lacked, got this, imagination, <laughs> and that he had no good ideas. That editor, he made a bad choice. He made a bad choice. And then there's this guy. <laughs> his name is, of course, Elvis Presley. And after a performance at Nashville's Grand Old Opry, You know, Elvis was told by the concert hall manager that he would be better off returning to Memphis and continue driving trucks for a living. (laughs) I mean, he listened to this guy and said, nah, he'll never make it. (laughs) People making bad choices. They look at what's in front of them, what is laid out before them, and they make some bad choices. And friends, you and I, we have some memories of our own bad choices, stuff we don't want to bring up here because they're just too ridiculously embarrassing. But we're talking about choices. And the choice I'm talking about here this morning is the choice that we make in response to the grace of God. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth in his uh, second epistle that we've been studying here in this chapter of chapter 6. And I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. And Paul is going to take just a, a chapter here to talk to the church because his fear is that there are people among the, the congregation... That have heard the gospel. They have heard the word of God taught to them, displayed out before them. And they made the wrong choice. They thought, no, it's okay if I just go along, but not really join it all. Not really choose to, to lay out your life, lay out this one and choose a new one. They were hanger ons. They, they were the people that sat. It didn't matter where they sat. They probably sat in the front row. They probably even led some ministries. But friends, these people never chose, made the right choice about the grace of God. And by the grace of God, I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about first, the gospel of grace. And you know what the gospel is? Christ died for our sin and he rose from the dead. And here was this opportunity to simply respond to this great act of love and grace by God in sending His Son and Jesus who died for the sin of the world. And they would not put their faith in Him. They thought they could figure it out on their own. And in the second area of grace was that in sanctification. God saves us. In order to sanctify us in preparation for the ultimate salvation, which is living with him forever. And these people were making some bad choices. And we can see some of the obvious ones in regard to sanctification. And by the way, they treated one another and the way they, they looked at others as tools as opposed to treasures. And my friends... They made some bad choices. So what I'd like to do here this morning is to break it down for us here so that we can make sure that we make the right choices about the grace of God. And as we begin here in verse 1 of chapter 6 in Second Corinthians, we're going to realize that we need the grace of God for salvation. We need it, and we've got to choose for it. We've got to respond to it with faith. And I want you to notice what Paul writes here. He says, now working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And by what does he mean, the receiving the grace of God? Does that mean they put their faith in the gospel? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about they had the grace of God preached in front of them, that that was taught in their their gatherings, that was talked about among them. The grace of God was the message that Paul preached. And while they heard it, and I'm talking about sound waves, friends, it never made to their heart. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about there must have been people in the congregation that Paul was talking about. And he says, I'm concerned about you that you're going to receive the grace of God in vain. And look at verse 2. He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you in a day of salvation. I have helped you. And behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And here is Paul quoting the Old Testament, reminding them to choose to trust in God not to receive or hear the grace of God preached among them, lived out before them, and to simply walk away. Now is the time to put your faith in Christ. So let's just pause for a moment and take it literally and evaluate in your own life whether or not you have trusted in Christ. I'm not talking about praying a prayer. I'm not talking about an event in some church way back in your past. I'm talking about, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone to forgive you of your sins and to give you a new life? I'm not talking about what you did. I'm talking about what you're doing today. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? My friends, if you are not, now is the time. Now is the time. Paul lays it out really clearly in verse 1 and 2. Now is the time to put your trust in Him. And I know something might pop into your head. Well, you know, I would have. But, you know, that, that couple, that, you know, that one person, that, you know, if that pastor wouldn't have. Uh... Because the temptation is to blame others. It's not my fault. Well, you know, I would have done the right thing if it weren't for And look at here. Paul, Paul tried to make it clear right away that if you're going to blame someone, you can't blame me. You can't blame someone else. Look at Paul's practice. He lays it out. His practice was to get out of the way, to let the gospel do the work, and for him to step out of the way. Verse 3, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. I mean, he went to such extremes to stay out of the way, he endured great suffering. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonment, riots, labors, and sleepless nights of hunger. Paul was tripping over himself trying to get out of the way to make the gospel the main thing, not Paul. He even guarded himself, verse 6, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God and the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Everything that Paul did in the manner and he did it was to get out of the way that he might not be the issue, that Jesus might always be the issue. And so he endured great suffering. He guarded himself. And he even endured insults from the church. It's one thing to be attacked outside the church. And Paul certainly was, talking about endurance of affliction and hardship and calamities and beatings. But he even endured insults from people inside the church. Look at verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. And this, this begins this we are treated as, as a list of they call us this, but we are this. We're treated as imposters. Yet we are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, and as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Certainly a description of a believer who makes a stand for Christ, who finds themselves as a target to others. Making a stand. People throwing insults and accusations. And even weaponry at you. And yet we are rich. And we possess everything. And so friends Paul begins by saying. If you're going to be presented with the grace of God. For salvation. The only good choice is to respond in faith. Respond in faith. We need the grace of God for salvation. But I notice here in verse 11, Paul moves on from salvation to sanctification. And remember, sanctification is the process in which God is changing us from the inside and out, developing our character, transforming our character from who we were into the image of Christ. That we are people of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and self control. All of these things that both reflect Christ and bring glory to Him. And so we need the grace of God for sanctification. Yes, there's a choice in that as well. You can either cooperate with God. Or fight against his work in your life. And it's all about the choices we make. And so, how do we do it? Well, guard yourself from what pulls you away. Guard yourself from what pulls you away. Verse 11 We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our heart is wide open. We're not hiding a thing. It's all clear, laid out in front of you. But look at verse 12. And you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And the things that you long for and the things that you search out wherever you go, the longings of your heart is what restricts you in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ your affections, my friends. It's all about the appetite. And we have different appetites, don't we? We could talk about food, you know. The other day, I took my daughter out for lunch, and we went to this uh, Chinese buffet. And and with a buffet, you have all kinds of choices. And yet, we are always drawn to that which enlightens our appetite, which wakes it up. You know, biologically, the mouth starts watering as you're thinking about lunch. It might be happening to you. And your stomach is growling, and you can't wait to take of it. And Paul says, if you have an appetite for the wrong thing, it will draw you away from God. The restrictions of your own affections. Well, Paul says you need to guard yourself because stuff's pulling you away. But here in verses 13 to 15, Paul tells us how, how to do it. How do we guard ourselves from that which pulls us away from Christ, which steals away an appetite for the Word of God? How do we do it? How do we guard ourselves? Verse 13, in return, and I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. In other words, open up to what I'm talking to you about. Don't be so defensive. Listen up and receive this truth. He says, first off, you must refuse partnerships with unbelievers. Now, right now, some of you are saying, we need a definition of what you mean by that, pastor. Does that mean we can't be with unbelievers in any way? We can't uh, ride in a car with them? We can't? No, that's not what we're talking about at all. Jesus talked about that in His high priestly prayer. You know, we are separate from the world. We are distinct from the world as children of God. But one thing that doesn't change is the in the world. And we couldn't possibly make a difference in the world if we were out of the world. So we are in it, we are just not of it. We are different because we have the Spirit of God in us, because we are the children of God. And so, what is Paul talking about in this partnership? Look at verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the picture of being yoked uh, comes out of a a reference from the Older Testament about uh, instructions. You wouldn't yoke a cow and a mule, two different animals, two different temperaments, two different actions. It is a foolish endeavor to put the two together. And the same is true about believers and unbelievers. In what ways can believers be yoked together with unbelievers? How about in business, business decisions? Choosing to go into a business partnership with an unbeliever is a dangerous thing, my friends. Because we were born for eternity. And an unbeliever has a different set of appetites and goals. And they will have different styles and methodologies. And what they are willing to tolerate may be a whole different thing than you. And we certainly have glimpses of that. Think about working in a a business that is, is not surrounded by believers. And you see, hey, they're doing it a different way than I would do. They treat people differently than I would like to treat them. Unfortunately, sometimes we see those in Christian businesses as well. And we can see how horrific it is when your heart cries out to do one thing, but your partner cries out for another. How can two walk together unless they agree? It's Amos 3, 3, I think. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Thank you. (laughs) I see that nod in the balcony. (laughs) But it's true, friends. We've got to refuse these partnership with unbelievers, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and you know who is a classic illustration of the danger here. It is the wisest, richest, smartest guy that ever lived, and it's a paradox. How can the wisest person in the world make such a foolish choice? You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Solomon. Solomon. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14, we're going to give some background to this guy Solomon. Way, way, way in history, before the the people of God were even in the land, before they even had an idea about, uh, uh, about judges, about kings even, God said there's going to be a day when you're going to want a king, and I want to talk to you about it. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, and you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses. Oh, well, what's God got against horses? The issue isn't the horses, friends. It is they were the tank of the day. And when you have multiplied tanks, you begin to trust in your own strength, and it will tear you away from the Lord. So he must not acquire many horses. But we find in First Kings chapter 4 that Solomon had 40,000 stables. In other words, he had a whole bunch of horses, twelve thousand riders, for all of these horses. His heart being drawn away from the strength of a horse. So one must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives. And Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And why shall he not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart is turned away and nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now if you were to turn to First Kings in chapter 10, you would see this, this great listing of all of the wealth. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, came to investigate the wisdom of Solomon. She was blown away by it. And yet even in all of this wisdom... We can see that that Solomon had great treasures accumulated. These great big lions and bulls, they were all covered in gold and silver. The riches were everywhere. Three pitches, three strikes. Solomon did it all. The wisest man in all of history. None like him before, none like him after. And God said, this is the way to life. And he chose others. And then there's this little note here in verse 18 that says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. What a great idea. Before the the man shall sit on his throne, what he's going to do is he's going to make his own copy, word by word, of the Old Testament law so that he might never say, I didn't know that so that he might read for himself, see it, think it, write it, every word that God had revealed, the way of life for this, 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 this king reigning in, in, in a way to serve God. And so he shall make himself a book, a copy of the law, and oh, by the way, it's approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart might not be lifted up among his brothers or above his brothers, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. So how did Solomon do? Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. It's right up here. It's, uh, you can make a mark in your notes if you like and look at it for yourself. But we read, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Well, except for Solomon, you know, because he's really smart. I mean, he's got wisdom that people will travel to hear. I mean, surely it doesn't... This doesn't uh, certainly affect people so smart like him and you and me, right? (laughs) For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart just as God said they would. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord And did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And the list continues on of all of the things that he did to build these places of worship for these idols, Encouraging the people to worship demons. And it all started with the first one. You say, how in the world? I mean, you know, how many ceremonies could a man endure of these weddings? I mean, how could he have? This was all about covenants, my friends. Remember about the horses? You multiply the horses, and then you begin to depend on your own strength, and you forget about God. Every one of these wives did the very same thing. You see, when one nation made a covenant with the other then the leaders of those countries would exchange daughters and marry them. And now in that covenant, you are family. And why did people make covenants? To ensure their strength. The issue was the very same thing. Solomon began this this escapade to ensure the strength of his kingdom instead of trusting in the God who gave it to him. And it all started with one, my friends. And one leads to another, and then another, and another. It is infinitely more difficult to say no the second time than the first. Once you have opened the door, my friends, it is infinitely more difficult to shut it. When you make your choices, fight the battle on the first With blood, sweat, tears, and prayer, my friends, shut yourself off from everything that will draw you away from God. That is the issue of choices, my friends. There is the example of it the smartest guy on the planet. And he even couldn't get the simplicity that makes so much sense to us at this very moment. We're like, yes, yes, we will make the right choices. This is the way to life. We will not harm ourselves by going away and choosing that which will pull us from God. But then we walk out the door and we're back in the midst and we forget our resolve and we are pulled away my friends, don't let it happen to you. You're not a victim in this, my friends. You are a chooser. Choose wisely. And remember this, my friends, there is no common ground. There is no common ground to meet on. For what partnership, Paul writes, has righteousness with lawlessness is there a place where the two meet or intersect? And the answer is, of course, no. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Friends, you can't have it both ways. There is light and there is dark. Verse 15 What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement? has the temple of God with idols. Two things that must be separate. And remember this. Do not forget these words. Sin never compromises. It never does. I will clean myself. No, sin never compromises. And yet believers always do. why you sin because you're willing to compromise because you think just taking a little step over the edge is as far as you'll ever go and then someday you awaken and say how could i have gotten this far what happened to my hunger for the word of god why is it so easy for me to lie why are these words coming out of my mouth that never did before it is infinitely more difficult to turn back than it is to say, I will not go. Friends, we've got to draw some lines in this world. God's work, His intention for my life and yours is to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We cannot We cannot choose anything else. We cannot allow ourselves and our hearts to be pulled away and divided between God and this world. To be friends with this world, James says, is to be at enmity with God. We may be in it, but we cannot be of it. There's got to be some lines that we draw. Saying no to all that which would pull us from God. And remember, sin never compromises. You're the one that has to compromise to join the world. You're the one that has to consciously say, I will choose the world over God. I will choose the world's things over God's love. It seems to be an obvious choice, but I challenge you to make it. Every day, every opportunity, every experience. So what have we learned? The grace of God works in the believer to reconcile us to God and to transform us into the image of God or image of Christ. But sin will unfold all of it. Sin will unfold all of it. Sermon in a sentence, the grace of God works in the believer to reconcile us. To God. Transform us into the image of Christ. So if the Spirit of God is calling you, answer with faith. Answer with faith. Trust Him. If He is calling you to go, go. If He is calling you to stay, stay. If He is calling you to stand, stand. And if you have trusted Christ... Prepare yourself to be transformed. Work in cooperation with God, not in careless interaction with the world. And let go of whatever draws you away from God. This is the issue of pruning. The most obvious section of pruning is cutting away all the dead stuff, all of the deadness. Perhaps the hardest part of the pruning of our lives is to cutting away even the good so that we might only have the best. Put the shears in your hands, friends. Take a look at your life and determine what has got to go. What do you need to cut out of your life in order to have the best things of God? I'm not talking about just the bad things. Those ones are obvious. Things you need to the habits you need to quit. The patterns of life that you've been following, the things you need to cut out are the easy ones. But then when you've cut those out, friends, there's going to be some good things in your life you're going to have to say goodbye to in order to have the best things of God. It is the way of life. It is the choices that will either cheat us from the blessing of God Or keep us in the blessings of God. Working in cooperation with God. Make the right choice. God help us.